Well, would you grab a copy of the scriptures with me and open it to Matthew chapter 1. And as you're doing so, I want to take a moment to, to pray this morning. God, thank you for the hope that we do have in Jesus Christ. Hope according to ancient promises. Hope according to your unchanging character. Hope when things do seem bleak or dark or foggy. Uh, Hope in unique and obscure ways, even through um, the birth of a child. Lord, thank you that we can celebrate Christmas and remember the uh, this season of Advent where we were, they were waiting for the promised Savior to come, and indeed he came. Not recognized, not in ways expected, but he came. And again, Lord, we are waiting. We're waiting for your son Jesus, to come again as he promised. And until that day, Jesus said, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And when that end comes, we know you will come again. That You will take us to be with you so that we will be together always. And as we wait, Lord God, we thank you that we do have this hope And in these times, Lord God, uh, we would pray as you've told us to pray for the leaders that you have put over us. Thank you for the government that we live under, Lord God, for Prime Minister Trudeau and Premier Ford and the local officials, Father. Give wisdom to these men and women. Let them lead in righteousness and in truth. Enable us, Lord, to be lights in the darkness to be good and merciful neighbors in our community. Thank you for the season of hope. And as we look into the scriptures and remember that Christ came and is coming again, would it spark anew a hope in our lives that we would live by faith and be freed from despair. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 to 17 is where we find ourselves today. I don't watch a lot of uh, TV uh, these days, but uh, when I do, if it's live sports or uh, I usually around Christmas time can anticipate seeing some predictable commercials, and maybe you can too. You know Coca-Cola is going to have some cute Santa Claus commercial, and again, they did this year. Uh, Recently, over the past couple of years, I've seen that... uh, Soda Stream has been pretty like in your face with wanting to buy their thing. And I know my family or members of my family have in the past. You're going to see some chocolate commercials for our Rocher. One time when I was a kid, one of my family members asked for this 10, gal- 10 kilogram Toblerone that was shipped from Australia. Like I, one of the squares fit in your very hands, like two hands, chow it down. It, it, was eaten a lot quicker than I anticipated. Um, One of the commercials that I've seen in the past, not so much this year, but that comes around Christmas time, is uh, Ancestry.ca. Any of you used Ancestry.ca before? 23andMe. It's one of those websites that uh, if you put in your name and you sign up, uh, they have this archive of family records, and you can find out 
um, more about your lineage, more about your genealogy. And the pitch for it is that when you know who you are and where you came from, you'll find out something about yourself that you might not have known before. And for some people, when they find out who they are, where they came from, their family line, that gives this sense of pride. Uh, But for other people, the thought of your family and your history is something you'd rather have locked up in a box and you'd never want to hear about ever again. Uh, This Christmas season, we're starting a new series called The Wonder of Christmas. We're going to consider the why of Christmas. Christmas Eve is going to be the wow of Christmas. Today, though, we're going to consider the who that Christmas is all about. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 to 17, we're going to get to the bottom of the who Christmas is about by getting to the bottom of this genealogy. Jesus' ancestry, his family line, from Matthew 1, verse 1 to 17. And in Jesus' family line, there are some names there that if they were in your family line, they'd give you a sense of pride. There are some other names also, though, in the genealogy, in the family line of Jesus, that kind of would make you cringe and wish you could have locked them away in the box. But what Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 to 17 is going to teach us today is that the unique ancestry of Jesus proves that he is the savior we need. With the people who give a sense of pride, with the people who would make you kind of cringe, this unique ancestry proves that Jesus is the savior we need today. So I'm going to read this entire passage, verse 1 to verse 17. Let's do that now. This is God's word. And this is what it says, verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Ovid by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, I had to practice this one a few times, Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abiud, and Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Matin, and Matin, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ, 
So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Okay, still awake? The unique ancestry of Jesus, names that give you pride, names that make you cringe, the unique ancestry of Jesus proves that he is the Savior we need. Today I want to answer three questions. First, how does he prove that Jesus is the Savior we need? Second, why does this matter that we would go through a genealogy list like this? And third, what does it really mean? If you're taking notes with the printed ones that were provided today, the third and fourth point were reversed, so just be aware of that so you don't get lost as we go along. Let's answer the first question. How does he prove that Jesus is the Savior we need? And the answer is with artistic thoughtfulness. So when I say how, I don't mean like the, the, the bullet points, the logic. I mean the manner, the way. Kind of like when you're sitting down at a restaurant and before you even sit down at the table and you eat the meal, you feel the atmosphere and you see the lighting and the table is set in a certain way. There's some artistic thoughtfulness to this list here that we see Matthew prepare for us. Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. And there's some artistic detail he uses to describe and outline the unique ancestry of Jesus. Here's the thing about art. Art doesn't normally try to convince you of the truth. Art normally tries to develop a deeper appreciation for the truth. You kind of get this. You kind of get this if, you, uh, if you're a Leafs fan. In 2016, the Leafs unveiled a new logo. Right? They've had a lot of different logos over the time, and they unveiled this new one in 2016. And when they unveiled it, they shared how they didn't just create a new logo just to freshen some things up and get some money out of your wallet, but they did some things to be able to uh, create a new design that had a deeper appreciation for their history. The new Leafs logo has 31 points on it, corresponding to the year when Maple Leafs Gardens was opened in 1931. It has uh, 17 veins in the logo, representing the 17 Stanley Cups that the Leafs have won over their history. None in most of our lifetimes, though, right? But the point was that they just wanted to create something new and get some money out of their pocket. They wanted to embed some history, some meaning, some appreciation into the artistic design. Art develops an appreciation in the details. That's what Matthew's doing here. And there are two particular artistic ways that he embeds into this genealogy that he wants to see you to see and appreciate, to taste the beauty of Jesus' ancestry. The first is the repetition of 14. We saw that really explicitly in verse 17, right? 14 generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations from David to the Babylon, 14 generations from Babylon to Christ. Now, as I was reading and considering the, what's, what does this mean? What's the, what's the meaning of this number 14? We don't really know, but, but we know Matthew cares about this a lot. It's likely that the original Jewish audience understood some, some significant spiritual significance of the number 14. We don't know exactly what it means, though, today. What we do know is that he expected his readers to get it, and it would spark something when they read it. And here's the point. The original readers, seeing this repetition of a significant number, recognized that 
This isn't a normal family lineage. Something extraordinary is happening here. All right, that's the first artistic detail. The second one is in the first few words of verse 1. And this is a little harder, uh, easier to miss, but it's significant. Verse 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. A little harder to catch this in our English translations, but to the original readers reading this, these words, the book of the genealogy, immediately would have... Um, called back to the same words that were used in their Greek copy of the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, there's this term that shows up nine times, and they're kind of the nine chapter marks that the, uh, Moses used when he first wrote Genesis. Nine times this phrase, the generations of, shows up. In Genesis 2 verse 4, these are the generations of heaven and earth. Genesis 5, verse 1, these are the generations of Adam. Genesis 6, verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. Each time this term showed up in Genesis, there's a shift, there's a progression, there's a change in the story. So when the Jews see in their original language this word from Genesis being used here in Matthew, it grabs their attention like, ah, just like Genesis. Matthew's telling us there's, with the birth of Jesus, a shift Happening, a progression happening, a change here. The detail here, the artistic callback, this Easter egg, as you might say, shows us that not only is something extraordinary happening here, but something potentially revolutionary is happening here. Matthew's trying to grip the attention of the reader to show them that the unique ancestry of Jesus proves. He is the Savior we need. That's how he tries to prove it, with artistic thoughtfulness. So why does this matter? Why include an entire list here? Why isn't just verse 1 enough? Why do you need these three sequences of 14 names? Why does this matter? Why include a full genealogy? Well, the Jews really cared for a full written record. They are pretty obsessive about their family lineages. But there's something else happening here also. See, most of the people today who are reading the Bible are believers who already kind of trust the Bible. But when the Gospels were originally written, they were originally written as evangelistic tools for unbelievers. Matthew is anticipating, like, not people like pressing in, ears open, ready to learn. Like he's anticipating people, arms folded, leaning back a little, hmm, not sure. And he wants to prove that Jesus is the savior they need. So he includes some unique figures in this lineage that would show the reader unique situations that they might relate to that would prove to them that God cares for their unique situations. He includes some people that uh, skeptics might relate to, that marginalized people that might relate to, that people going through suffering might relate to. See, Jesus, God isn't intimidated by the questions of skeptics. Actually, this genealogy shows us that God gives reason Two questioning skeptics. See, in Jesus' age in the first century, the claim 
that Jesus was born of a virgin could have had the perception of scandal. And Jews might have looked back and said, like, I don't know if I can trust this, a little skeptically. But they would have read of the name Judah and Tamar in the genealogy of Jesus. And that was like a really scandalous relationship with some really like R-rated stuff going on there. But Jews knew that the Savior was promised to come from the line of Judah. So if this birth with Jesus, which was only the perception of a scandal, might have given them cause for pause to wonder if they could trust God, the reminder that God was at work in a really scandalous scandalous relationship like Judah and Tamar would have shown them maybe God's hand is at work in here with Mary as well. God's not intimidated by uh, skeptical questions. He gives reasons to them. Also, to the people who feel marginalized, like they're on the outside, there are some names here that would give them show that God shows mercy. God shows mercy to the marginalized. See, there are a couple names of women here that are listed that don't really need to be listed because for most of the time, you just see the fathers are listed, right? But there are a couple wives that are listed. uh, Ruth, Rahab, Bathsheba. Ruth, Ruth was a refugee. Rahab was a prostitute. Bathsheba was abused by a man in power. And the Jewish culture might have looked down at women like this. Can we just like skip that in the family line? But Matthew intentionally gives attention to them. Their culture might have looked down on women such as this as shameful, but God gives special attention to people like this and honors them. God shows mercy to the marginalized. You might feel like you're on the outside, but the lineage of Jesus proves that God honors and accepts those who our culture might shame. Reason to the skeptic, mercy to the marginalized. We also see that God gives hope to the suffering. Because see, these three lists of 14 generations is really the history of Israel. And the history of Israel is full of ups and downs, highs and lows. It's full of seasons of wandering in the wilderness, slavery under tyranny, prosperity and established power, exile under oppression. But in the highs and in the lows, in the sins and the successes, God was with his chosen people the whole time. And seeing the history of God at work in here would give hope to those who are suffering to recognize that as God was with his chosen people here and God was working all things together for good here, so God can be at work in my life too. And it might feel like my life is silent, life is a mess, but the genealogy of Jesus, the unique history of Jesus proves that God is still with his chosen people. The unique ancestry of Jesus proves that he is the savior that we need. God cares for the skeptic. He cares for the marginalized. He cares for the suffering. Everything we've gone through so far, this is kind of just the appetizer, all right? But now when we get 
to this final question that's going to take up the rest of our time, we got to get to the main course. And the third question we want to ask and answer is, what does this really mean? And we really want to focus on three titles that are specified about Jesus in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. What does this mean? What is the meaning of Christ? Who is the Christ? What is the meaning of the son of David? What is the meaning of the son of Abraham? Well, on a basic level, Christ isn't a last name, all right? A lot of people may think about that about Jesus. Christ is not Jesus' last name. Christ is a title, like Prime Minister Trudeau, Queen Elizabeth. It's a title. And it's a title that describes that Jesus is the chosen one of God. That's what Christ means. He's the chosen one, the chosen Savior. Son of Abraham and son of David then both describe the type of Savior Jesus is and the kind of salvation that we need. Before I describe a little bit more about the type of Savior Jesus is as the son of David and son of Abraham, I think it's appropriate for us to pause and to have an honest moment of reflection as the church. Because the term Savior, the idea salvation, if we were honest with ourselves, these ideas which are so dear to us as the church have become very distasteful in the culture around us. For many, the message of a savior and the need for salvation kind of tastes like sour milk. No one who mistakenly pours a glass of sour milk and drinks it is then going to go look for a second glass. They're going to dump the glass and pour out the carton. And maybe that's the way Christianity is tasted to you. You sitting here or anyone watching at home. You're, you're not really in the frame of mind that Jesus is the Savior we need. You're in the frame of mind of like, do I even really need a Savior at all? Christianity, going to church, is really just a family tradition. Leftovers from your parents' generation that you do at Christmas and you do at Easter, but really doesn't have any relevancy to the way you live your life today. Do we really even need a savior is the question you're asking. One professor that I read recently has a very unique perspective towards this. Scott Galloway. Scott Galloway is a best-selling author, professor at New York University. In 2012, he was recognized by the World Economic Forum on a list of the 100 global leaders of tomorrow whose work has a worldwide impact. In an interview, Scott Galloway was asked, why as a society, we have allowed tech companies to become such a dominating influence in our lives today? This was his answer, really insightful. Not a friend of Christianity by any means. He said, we decided in a modern economy, as you become more educated and more affluent, your dependence upon a super being and church attendance go down. But our questions get bigger and bigger. And in order to fill that void between a spiritual need and a lack of spiritual figures, we need to fill it with people. 
and we used to fill it with athletes and government officials, but now we fill it with innovators. That's the reason that innovators like Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, Bill Gates, four of the top five richest human beings in the world are these celebrated, Scott Galloway would say, Jesus Christ-like figures who we look to for our hope. Really remarkable insight from this secular thinker. He recognizes that We've come to this place as a society where we think we've graduated from the supposed elementary ways of religion. But Scott Galloway understands that even though it's a secular society, people think they've graduated from church. We as a society also recognize that it feels like we missed some crucial classes. We don't feel like we need church, but our questions get bigger and bigger. We don't feel like we need a savior, but our despair gets deeper and deeper. And there are some questions that gnaw at us fundamentally at a human level that maybe you're gnawing at your heart. Where do I fit into this world? How can I make my life count? Who will actually take the effort to know me as I am and love me as I am? When is truth and justice ever going to prevail? We might not know or use the word that we're looking for salvation, but we feel that we're boxed in. And finding these answers to these questions can feel like looking up through a glass ceiling. Holding on to what we think is an answer can feel like grasping onto steam out of a kettle. And the frustration in finding answers to these questions bears another question. (laughs) How can we ever fix all that's really messed up? And looking for the answer to that question can feel like seeking for buried treasure. We search and we search and we search and we dig and we dig and we dig. But eventually, we run out of energy. We drop the shovel to look around to find that we've dug ourselves into a pit of despair that we can't get out of. Yet generation after generation, the church has held on to this elementary claim. Jesus is the savior we need. The unique ancestry of Jesus proves that he is the savior we need. So let's look now a little bit more at the type of savior that Jesus is and the kind of salvation that we need. What does it mean that Jesus is the son of Abraham, the son of David? First, son of Abraham. As the son of Abraham, Jesus is the chosen offspring who came to bless a broken world. And by golly, we feel that brokenness, don't we? A lot of people have this interesting perception about God as a grumpy cop. Some grumpy cop who's just tailgating you through life, waiting for you to speed through a yellow so he can slap you ticking on you. The first book of the Bible, Genesis, tells us something very different about the disposition of God towards humanity who he made in his own image. Time after time, in the book of Genesis, Scripture starts with and continues to say, the Lord blesses humanity. 
His disposition is to bless. God is for our good. That was the first thing that he spoke to humanity. He blessed them. While we get glimpses of the good that comes from the blessing of God, we mostly feel the brokenness. Why does this world feel so broken? Timothy Keller writes this. Pastor Timothy Keller says, sin is not simply doing bad things, like speeding through a yellow. Sin is not simply doing bad things. It's putting things in the place of God. See, we have missed God's blessing because we have chosen to look for the the fulfillment of the questions of our soul in the things God created rather than in the creator himself. And since we have exchanged the creator for the created thing, we maybe naively have exchanged the blessing for a curse. But the good news is that God is for our good. Throughout Genesis, even though humanity kept exchanging blessing for curse and blessing for curse and blessing for curse, God still promised to bless. And God promised that someone from the line of Abraham, a son of Abraham, would come and be a blessing to the entire broken world. That's Genesis 12, verse 12 to 3. The promise God made to Abraham. He said to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Jesus is the son of Abraham. Jesus is the chosen offspring who came to bless a broken world. How does Jesus do it? Jesus can give us God's blessing because he willingly suffered the curse in our place at the cross. Galatians 2 verse 13 to 14 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for you. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's the nations. That's the world. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. See, faith in Jesus forgives us of our sin and allows us to be able to reorder in Christ what sin disordered. So that we can find our fulfillment in the creator who made us rather than in the decaying creation around us. How would life look different in my life, in your life, if you actually knew and lived like you knew that you needed this type of salvation? A reordering of your desires so that you look for the good life, so that you look for a blessed life, not in how you define life in the way that you live life, but in the one who created life and designed your life. How would life look different? Jesus is the chosen offspring who came to bless a broken world. He is our good and shows us how to live a good life. He blesses a broken world. That's Jesus is the son of Abraham. 
What about Jesus as the son of David? What does this mean? As the son of David, Jesus is the chosen king who came to deliver us. David, well-known one who threw a stone at Goliath and took toppled him to his head. David was the greatest king in Israel's history. And as a king, the kings were supposed to live a life worth modeling and govern with rules worth following. A good king enabled a just society, but the royal family of Israel failed big time. And the country got so corrupt and so unjust that God allowed two foreign nations, Assyria and Babylon, to come in, destroy the nation, and take its citizens away as prisoners of war. Eventually, that's the deportation of Babylon. Eventually, God brought them back, but even when they came back, they suffered under a different nation, Rome. So they were hoping for freedom. And God promised to them that they would be a nation that would be free and that they would enjoy their freedom under a king who God promised would come and rule with righteous rules and live the model life so that they could all live in a just society and know how to contribute into a just society. And God promised that that deliverance and that prosperity would come through the son of David. Second Samuel 7, verse 12 to 13. When your days are fulfilled, God speaking to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. See, their hope was a just society and a free society, enjoying the blessing of God. And in order to find that, they were looking for the true king to come. And they thought that this king would come to deliver them from Roman oppression. But this is the unique type of savior that Jesus is. Before they were ever captives to Rome, before they were ever captives to Babylon, before they were ever captives to Assyria, they were first captive to the sin in their hearts. And so are we. But then the first Christmas came. Then Jesus was born. And the son of David wasn't born in a palace for a prince. He was born in a stable for sheep. And the son of David didn't wear a crown of gold with honor. He bled through a crown of thorns with shame. This is how the true king sets captives free. Jesus suffered as a prisoner in our place. The sentence of our sin is death. And Jesus faced it head on and broke free from its power when he rose from the dead. By faith in Jesus, the sin that keeps us down and keeps us from living the life of freedom following God's way to live the good life that he offered By faith in Jesus, we are liberated from that. And now we can swear allegiance to Jesus as king, following his righteous rules and modeling his way of life so that we can contribute to a just and a prosperous society that makes for peace. This is the kingdom of God. Jesus is the savior we need. How would your life look different if you lived 
like you knew you needed this salvation. I think if we knew, lived like we knew we needed this, we would live by faith. Because as Jesus is the son of Abraham, he has secured our blessing. He has secured our blessing because he became our curse. The good news for us is that the burden to perform, to find our place in this world, the burden to prove ourselves is relieved because Jesus proved to be the savior we need. If we really knew that Jesus secured our blessing, we would live by faith in him. We would be relieved of the burden of trying to prove ourselves. If we really lived like Jesus was the son of David, that faith would work itself out in love with joyful obedience. Because we would recognize how I think only the person who has felt the weight of their shackles can understand the glory of their liberty. And to recognize how shackled you were and to have that weight lifted off can now understand how free you are and you'll be so linked and united and so loyal to the one who liberated you that with love and joy, you would live obediently to King Jesus. You're my example. I'm following your way. Jesus is the savior I need. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room and with heaven and nature sing. Christmas is a hard season this year. Uh, This year we can't see our family like we normally would in years past. Maybe this year you're actually glad you have an excuse not to be able to go to Christmas dinner with your family. For some of us, our family lines are something worth uh, boasting in, worth taking on. And for others, our family lines and family dinners are something cringy that you'd rather avoid. But in Christ, you are more than your family line. Even if it's something to be proud about, or if it's something that makes you cringe. Jesus is the savior that we need. And in him, we are blessed children of Abraham. In Christ, we are free citizens of the kingdom. The unique ancestry of Jesus proves he is the savior that we need. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for the salvation that you offer us. Thank you for the salvation that you've secured for us, a blessing that has removed the curse and freedom that has liberated us from our captivity. Lord, would you strengthen me? Would you strengthen us with courage to live like we knew like we know we need this type of salvation from this kind of Savior. Thank you, Father, for this gift that we have and that we remember at Christmas. In Jesus' name, amen.